Welcome to PwC's accounting podcast series. I'm Heather Horn. Today's focus will be on accounting for costs related to contracts with customers, highlighting new guidance that was issued as part of the new revenue standard. We'll also address a few of the more recent questions we've been receiving as a result of the COVID-19 crisis. Joining me remotely from her home in California, please welcome PwC partner, Angela Ferguson. Don't forget to stay tuned for our new feature at the end of the podcast, where we focus on bringing some positivity in the current environment. We've got a lot to cover, so let's get started. So Angela, thank you so much for joining me again today to talk about another revenue topic and one I'm looking forward to because I know it's something new that came up with the new revenue standard and it was the new guidance that was released on accounting for costs associated with contracts with customers. So Angela, can you give a little background on the new cost guidance? Uh, Yeah, sure, Heather. So as part of developing a new revenue guidance that we've talked about a lot recently, the the FASB also issued some related cost guidance, and this is in ASC 340-40. And the guidance covers when do you expense versus capitalize certain costs, and it talks about two kinds of costs, cost to obtain a contract and cost to fulfill a contract. But just to give a little context here, it's important to understand that while the FASB you know, did create a full comprehensive model for revenue that wasn't the intention on the cost side. So they did not intend to create a full, complete, comprehensive model. Instead, they were really, I'd say, filling the gaps where we didn't have cost guidance before with this new 340-40 guidance. So what that means is that there's tons of other cost guidance in GAAP, uh, including you know inventory, PP&E, capitalized software. There's some industry-specific uh, guidance. And all of that guidance stays the same. So uh, you would first look to whether costs are in the scope of uh, one of these other standards that already existed in GAAP. And then it's only if the costs aren't covered by other GAAP that you would then look to 340-40 to see uh, if that guidance would apply. So, Angela, this is almost like guidance of last resort. So look at everything else, and if it's not covered, then you'd look to this guidance. Right. But then it's also in part important to know that it, it's not it's not optional. I mean, we'll talk about one particular practical expedient later, but if the costs do qualify for capitalization under 340-40, then you do have to follow that guidance. So it's not as if it's something that's uh, optional to apply. Right. But then how about if I have a case where other guidance is telling me to expense something? Can I turn to this guidance to say, oh, this would support capitalization? No. So that's a good question. If it's if the costs are in the scope of other guidance and that other guidance tells you to expense, you couldn't then look to 340-40 and say, I'm going to capitalize under this standard. It's, it's going to stay in the scope of the other standard. Okay, that's a good, helpful background. I think good platform for our discussion. So then, Angela, you mentioned that the new guidance covers two types of costs, and that would be the cost to obtain a contract as well as cost to fulfill a contract. Um, so starting with cost to obtain, what types of costs are we talking about, and when are they capitalized? Yeah, so just like it sounds, you know, cost to obtain a contract, these are costs that are, are incurred like leading up to signing a new contract with a customer. So think about uh, sales and marketing type costs, uh, maybe legal costs, but all the costs you might incur leading up to getting a new contract, but not 
yet starting to fulfill that contract. And these costs are only capitalized if they are incremental costs that are only incurred because the contract was successfully obtained from the customer. So a lot of those costs that I just mentioned, like marketing or maybe employee salaries, would not qualify as incremental because they're going to be incurred whether or not the contract is ultimately successfully obtained. Okay. And then Angela, just want to make sure I'm thinking about this the right way, not to go into too many specifics, but if I was thinking about legal costs, so if I have a legal department, those are not incremental whether or not I sign a contract. But if I have specific legal costs to negotiate a contract with a particular customer, then again, I know there's always facts and circumstances, but would that typically then be the type of thing that could be incremental or it's really going to depend? Well, it would depend. I'd say I haven't seen that too often because in order to be incremental, then the cost would only be incurred if the contract was successfully obtained. So oftentimes with the legal costs, you know, you're going to incur costs to draft up the contracts, et cetera, negotiation. And those costs would be incurred even if the deal fell through at the last minute. And the most common type of cost that we see meeting this criteria would be sales commissions. And sales commissions would be a payment that you have to make either to an internal or an external sales force that they that they earn because a new contract was signed. Uh, but I think what uh, some companies were surprised by is that this may be a little broader than what you would think about as far as a typical sales commission. Because often we're thinking about the salesperson who is on the ground uh, getting that uh, that deal signed, and you know, the commission plans related to 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 those employees or that external sales force. But we found that many companies also have bonus structures that give bonuses or payments to. You know, employees that relate to signing new contracts or you know, new bookings, it's often called, maybe members of management or others that aren't necessarily what you would think of as your sales force, but are also receiving a payment that is effectively akin to a commission. And so those payments may be incremental costs as well if they're only being made if new contracts are obtained. So it's going to be very important, obviously, for companies, I think we talk about this every podcast, but for companies to make sure they really understand their arrangements and that it's not just, as you said, oh, this salesperson was the one who was involved, but really looking up the chain to see who else might be benefiting from signing that contract. Now, for cost to obtain, there is a practical expedient. So if the period over which those costs would be amortized is one year or less, a company can optionally elect to expense instead of capitalize those costs. And this is just a you know an expedient for companies who generally have like very short-term contracts that they don't have to capitalize and track these costs. But the important thing to remember here is that the expedient applies uh, based on the amortization period of the cost. And we'll get to this later, but that might not be the same period as the contract period. So you can't necessarily just look at the contract period and say it's less than a year. So I'm going to apply the expedient because you have to consider what the amortization period would be. And then Angela, is that expedient on a contract by contract basis or how does that get applied? 
it would be applied as a policy to all similar contracts. And so what we have seen is that if a company has a mix of shorter or longer term contracts, they maybe don't want to apply the expedient because it's actually harder to split out the ones that uh, qualify for the expedients and the ones that don't. So it's just easier to uh, capitalize all the costs versus a company that uh, maybe the the majority of their contracts are going to be shorter term. And so it makes sense to apply the expedient because they don't want to track and capitalize these costs. So then, Angela, let's move on to the other type of costs, which would be the cost to fulfill a contract. So that would be obviously after you have the contract. What types of costs would be included here? Yeah, so these are costs uh, that relate to performing under a contract, and they could include direct labor, direct materials, certain allocated costs, costs that you can explicitly charge to the customer under the contract, or other costs that are incurred just because of the contract, including payments to uh, subcontractors and costs similar to that. So again, you're first going to look to other guidance that might apply to those costs. You know, For example, if you're manufacturing inventory, you're clearly going to look to the inventory standards first to determine how to deal with those costs. But if the costs are not in the scope of other standards, then you would be looking again at 34040 to see if the cost to fulfill uh, should be capitalized. These costs are capitalized only if they relate directly to a contract or an anticipated contract. They generate or enhance resources used to satisfy future performance obligations, and the company expects to be able to recover the costs. That's kind of a mouthful, but basically what we're talking about are costs that are incurred in advance of transferring goods and services to the customer. So costs that relate to past performance are going to be expensed. Um, and additionally, costs of like wasted materials or inefficiencies are also expensed as incurred. Okay. So then, Angela, one point before we move on then, why did we here refer to anticipated contracts? Yeah. And the reason why the standard mentions anticipated contracts is because there are situations where you might start getting ready to perform under a contract before it's officially signed and approved and and you actually meet the criteria under the revenue standard to have a contract. So the standard sort of anticipates that you might incur some of these costs before you actually have the contract in hand. You'd have to be incurring these costs with that specific contract in mind. So then, Angela, can you give an example to sort of bring this to life? Yeah, the most common example that we see that ends up meeting these criteria to be capitalized would be certain kinds of uh, setup or mobilization costs that are incurred as a company is getting ready to start performing on a contract. So say a company is entering into a long-term contract to perform a service for a customer, say they're using like a technology platform to provide the service, there may be various activities that the company needs to perform in order to get ready, uh, get that customer set up in their system, et cetera, to get ready to perform that service. And so these activities are not part of the actual service they're providing under the contract, but enabling the company to be able to provide the service in the future. So you know, if these costs aren't in the scope 
of other specific U.S. GAAP, like internal use software, then they may qualify for capitalization under 340-40. But what's really, I think, the key takeaway for cost to fulfill is that you do have to meet those criteria in order to capitalize costs. And so you can't just defer costs because of the, the matching principle. And, and what I mean by that is that there are various reasons why revenue may need to be deferred under a contract. You know, for example, you may have variable consideration that you're constraining so you can't yet recognize it. Or, you know, we've talked about collectability. If it's not collectible, you may have to, to defer revenue. And oftentimes I see that people will jump to a conclusion that if you're deferring revenue, then you can also defer the costs. And I think this maybe goes back to like our accounting 101 class, right? Where we learned about the matching principle, but you really cannot uh, just defer costs unless you have a basis for deferring, whether that's under other US GAAP or under this 340-40 guidance. And so in order to defer, you need to meet the criteria that uh, that I went through, that you know these costs... Uh, specifically, they relate to satisfying a future performance obligation. Another time we see this come up is when companies have long-term contracts where the timing of revenue and costs is not completely aligned. And this may be because revenue is based on some measure other than costs, say it might be uh, labor hours incurred or some other external measure is driving your measurement of progress on the contract and how you recognize revenue. And it's not aligning directly with the pattern of incurring costs. So say you're at, you're at a contract and in a particular period, you incurred 30% of the total cost you expect to incur, but because of your measure of progress, you're only 20% through the contract. So you can only recognize 20% of the revenue. So in that situation, one reaction is that I should defer some of those costs so that I have like an equal margin throughout my contract. But really, you, you can only do that if you, again, meet these specific criteria for de deferring. And if you don't, then, I mean, the result is that you may have different margins throughout your contract. So an example I gave, you're going to have a lower margin in the beginning of the contract and then possibly a higher margin later on. And this is, uh, you know, a little bit of not what people might expect. Yeah. Well, so you said that's not what people expect. Maybe also not what people like, because I do think right. As accountants, we love our matching principle, our equalization, those things. So now that we've kind of laid the groundwork for what qualifies for capitalization under the standard, then why don't we move on to day two accounting? So what happens next? Yeah, so there's a single um, principle for amortization of the assets capitalized under 340-40, whether it's cost to obtain or cost to fulfill. And the principle is that these costs should be amortized on a systematic basis that's consistent with the transfer of the related goods or services to the customer. The key point here is that the related goods or services could relate just to that particular contract or could extend to renewals of the contract in the future. And this is mostly something we see in cost to obtain a contract. 
where you incur these costs and the asset relates not only to the initial contract, but the expectation that the customer may continue to renew in the future. So if you're not paying another commission or uh, you know a similar commission when the contract is uh, renewed, that asset to obtain the contract actually relates to both the initial contract and the renewal. So the amortization period would include the expected renewal periods. But this uh, is really going to require some judgment to determine what is the appropriate amortization period. Um, And companies usually do this on a portfolio basis. Um, So they're going to be looking at their you know, their whole customer base and coming up with a sort of average customer life to come up with an amortization period and not typically looking at individual contracts. But it certainly depends on your business and whether you have you know, individually material contracts with customers or you have you know, a large number of contracts that are similar that you can look at on a portfolio basis. But then again, companies may need to think about other factors beyond just how often they expect customers to renew. And to give you an example, you may have a, for example, a a SaaS arrangement where customers originally sign up for one year and then may renew at the end of one year. And your history may show that customers renew 95% of the time, but that doesn't mean you have sort of this infinite customer expected life because the you know the technology behind your SaaS doesn't have you know, an infinite life behind it. And so you would also consider sort of what is the life of the technology um, that I'm providing and that may then limit the amortization period to some some shorter term. And then Angela, I'll test my knowledge. SaaS is software as a service. Is that right? Yes, that's right. All right. So I've learned from our other, our past podcasts. So then Angela, it sounds like in general that if I'm looking at this, there's, it's similar to any time you're determining something like an amortization period, it would include your past history, potential obsolescence, you know, again, if it's a portfolio or an individual contract, maybe if it's a new service, you would look to other similar services you've performed in the past, but basically this is, would be a judgment that you would determine, but then also have to continue to monitor and update as with the passage of time. So that's a really good point, Heather, especially in the current environment. You may have developed an amortization period in the past, but now looking at any changes in circumstances or how customers are behaving may impact that analysis and may need to be updated at this point. And uh, two things I want to touch on before we leave the topic of amortization. One is that, um, as we've just discussed, the amortization period could extend beyond the initial contract. And that's important to remember because the practical expedient for costs to obtain can only be applied if the amortization period is one year or less. So you do really need to think about what would your amortization period be before determining whether you could apply the practical expedient if that's your policy. Um, And then the other thing I want to to mention is that the amortization method, again, under that principle, is supposed to be a systematic basis consistent with the transfer of the related goods or services. So you're effectively trying to mirror the recognition of revenue with your recognition of expenses. In some cases, that may be 
straight line because you're recognizing revenue on a straight line basis. You're going back to the SaaS example or some other service where it's provided ratably over the period. But there are other arrangements where revenue is not recognized straight line. Perhaps you have multiple performance obligations that are being satisfied at different times. And so the amortization, again, needs to sort of mirror the the recognition of revenue and straight line is likely not going to be appropriate in that circumstance. Practically, how companies often do that is by taking the asset and effectively allocating it to the different performance obligations that it relates to. And that can help you achieve that principle of it being consistent with the transfer of the related goods or services. And again, that's not specifically required under the standard, but that is one way that companies are able to achieve that principle. Okay. And then, Angela, let's go back to a moment. You know, you touched on the current environment and how your amortization periods may be changing. So then how about impairment? What type of impairment model would we look at? And in particular, you know, if I have a drastic change in my amortization period, like how do you deal with those issues? Again, like these assets are only recorded in the first place if you expect them to be recoverable. You know, looking back a few months, I probably would have told you, Heather, that we don't usually see a lot of impairment issues coming up um, because of the, the fact that you're only recording the assets in the first place if they're recoverable. But of course, uh, we're now seeing a lot of unexpected changes in the environment. And so the impairment question is much more relevant now. And so the impairment model for these assets is that you, you need to adjust the assets if the carrying amount exceeds the um, consideration that you expect to receive under the contract in the future, as well as any consideration received but not yet recognized as revenue, less the cost related to directly providing those goods and services. If that formula is less than the carrying amount of the asset, then you have an impairment that you need to record. Um, And a couple of details here, when you're looking at the consideration to be received under the contract, you you would also consider renewals, extensions, similar to how you would for the the amortization period that we just talked about. Um, You would also adjust that amount for expected credit risk. And you would also include any estimated variable consideration, but you don't apply the variable consideration constraint. So you don't have to have that extra amount of conservatism with the constraint. These assets are going to be included in, a, in an asset group. You know, when we talk about you know, other types of impairment models, so then ordering becomes important. So the way these assets would fit in is that you would test impairment of these specific assets first, and then any adjusted carrying amount would be included in the asset group before you do any impairment analysis of the asset group. So then Angela, one question there is, let's say, you know, I'm at a point in time and I say, okay, um, I have it, I do my calculation and I have an impairment. So I recognize the impairment, but how about a different circumstance, which we touched on, which is that, oh, I thought I was going to maybe get renewals and now I don't think so, or, or something like that. And so my 
amortization period gets shorter, then would you just make that change prospectively? Yeah, you would update it um, like another, like other changes in accounting estimates. And I think it would, you would look at that similar to other assets being amortized and adjusting the amortization period in a similar way. Okay, good, Angela. That's helpful. And then maybe it's our last topic today. Let's visit our perennially popular topic of disclosures and what should companies be thinking about from a disclosure perspective when they're dealing with 340-40 costs? Yeah, there are, there are some specific disclosures that are required for public business entities related to costs capitalized under 340-40. So the first is disclosure of judgments made to determine costs to obtain or fulfill a contract and the method of amortization. And as we've discussed, there are a number of judgments in this area. Second, you need to disclose closing balances of assets by major category of asset. Uh, you also need to disclose the amount of amortization or impairment for the period. And lastly, if you are using that practical expedient that I referred to for cost to obtain a contract, then you need to disclose that you are utilizing the expedient. Uh, now, I did say these are disclosures for public business entities. For, for private companies, these disclosures are optional. Okay, great. And then, Angela, if people are looking for more guidance on this topic, where should they look? Yeah, we cover cost to obtain and cost to fulfill a contract in Chapter 11 of our Revenue Guide. Okay, great. And then, Angela, before we wrap things up, you may remember from uh, our podcast we recorded earlier this week, our new podcast positivity feature. And so my question for you today is, I know you have children. Uh, so quickly, who your children are and what you're planning to do for Mother's Day. I have three kids. They are 13, 10, and 6. So we have a lot of, uh, a lot of activity going on in our house. <laughs> um, what we're planning to do for Mother's Day, uh, you know, I don't, I don't really know. But there's a uh, bottle of champagne in the fridge. So certainly mimosas in the morning, I think, will be very important. <laughs> <laughs> well, three kids, yes, that's probably true. So hopefully, I know um, you've had your hands full with everyone being at home. So hopefully you will at least get a day to yourself because I know well-deserved. So I uh, hope you enjoy it. Thanks, Heather. All right. Thanks, Angela. So thanks again to Angela for joining me today. I loved hearing her Mother's Day plans. Um, in terms of my own Mother's Day plans, as frequent listeners to the podcast know, I have two teenagers, 17 and 15, and I'm definitely looking forward to being home with them for Mother's Day, although it sounds like Angela's family is one step ahead of mine in terms of what they have planned. Um, and then with that, Tune in again next week for more discussion on the latest accounting issues so that you never miss an episode. Subscribe to this series wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if there's a topic you'd love to hear us cover, please reach out to me at heather.horn at pwc.com. I enjoy all the emails I receive from listeners, and it would be great to hear from you. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.